Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to a special Halloween bonus edition of the Drive-In Double Feature Movie Podcast. I am, of course, Ted, and I hate crossing streams on logs. And with me, of course, is my scary, spooky sidekicks, Eric. Because this is America. We've exhausted all our natural resources. And Ken. I want to avoid any cheese. So, three podcasters enter the podcast. Will any of us exit the podcast? I guess you have to wait and find out. With our dignity intact, we will exactly. find out. We had dignity before this? Well, not much. So, Eric, do you have the details of the Blair Witch Project? That I do, Ted. The Blair Witch Project opened officially July 30th, 1999, and it grossed about $141 million here in the U.S. and $108 million outside of the U.S. for a total global gross of $249 million, and that was about 4,000 times its original budget of $60,000. That has to be one of the biggest disparities that we've encountered, correct, as far as gross to actual budget? If you look at the original budget and it's gross, it is the number one or two high and grossest movie of all time, right up there with Paranormal Activity, which cost uh, about $15,000 to make. Gotcha. Now, the post-production on this thing varies between $200,000 and $500,000, but still, it made a lot of money. This movie stars Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. It was directed by and produced by Daniel Meinick and Edward Sanchez, and edited by Daniel Meinick and Edward Sanchez for their production company, Haxum Films. And then Artesian Entertainment purchased it for about $1 million and spent approximately $8 million to market this film. And there you have The Blair Witch Project. What did the critics have to say about The Blair Witch Project? Ted, the critics love this movie. The New York Times said The Blair Witch Project is just plain scary in a way that tapped perfectly into the trends and anxieties of the moment. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up, calling it creative, inventive, and ingenious. Rotten Tomatoes certified fresh at 86%. Krish Nashwadi of Entertainment Weekly said it's one of the creepiest films since The Exorcist. Des Desmond Ryan of the Philadelphia Inquirer says you can dismiss the Blair Witch Project as a trick or you can give in to the treat and savor the rarest of accomplishments in a field notorious for tedium and repetition, an original horror movie. And Peter Travers of Rolling Stone calls it scary as hell. That's really interesting that the critics had so much good to say about it. Ted, I couldn't find any bad reviews of this movie and I looked. I wonder if there's two things at play. We're going to talk about the marketing of this movie later, but I wonder if it was because it was really different from other, I mean, this was a huge step away from the Splatterhouse films, slasher films of the 1980s and early 90s. I wonder if that played a part in why they were so high on this movie. 
And you got to remember, this is a time right when the internet was just starting to come into its heyday. Right. So marketing this thing was a lot of it was word of mouth. Yeah, and we're going to discuss that at length coming up. But yeah, that's really interesting that you couldn't find hardly one uh, negative review, especially from the heavy hitters mm -hmm. that you mentioned that are usually hypercritical of horror movies. We're still going to review it at this podcast, so there's still a chance. We're not heavy hitters. We, we try to be heavy hitters. So, Ken, do you have the plot of The Blair Witch Project? Yeah, three filmmakers go into the woods to film a documentary. None of them come back. End of story. Um, you sure you don't have anything more to say about it than that? This is going to be a long podcast. Well, in October of 1994, film students Heather, Mike, and Josh set out to produce a documentary about the legend of the Blair Witch. They travel to Burkittsville, Maryland, and interview residents about the legend. Locals tell them of a hermit who lived in the woods and killed seven children in the 1940s. The students explore the woods to research the legend. They meet two fishermen who tell them of a young girl who went missing in 1888. When she returned three days later, she talked about an old woman whose feet never touched the ground. The students hiked to Coffin Rock, where five men were found murdered in the 19th century. Their bodies later disappeared. They camp for the night, and the next day they find an old cemetery where seven piles of rock graves. That night, they hear what seems to be twigs snapping. The following day, they try to hike back to the car, but were unable to find it before dark and have to make camp again. They again hear twigs snapping during the night. In the morning, they find three more piles of rock graves outside their tent that were not there the day before. Heather learns her map is missing. Mike reveals he kicked the map into the creek out of frustration, which prompts the other two to attack him in rage as they realize they are now lost. They decide to head south using a compass and discover humanoid stick figures suspended from trees. They again hear strange sounds that night, including children laughing. The tent starts to shake and they flee in panic and they don't come back until an hour later. Upon returning to their tent, they find Josh's equipment covered with slime. They come across a log identical to the one they crossed by earlier and realize they have walked in a circle. Josh suffers a breakdown and disappears the next morning. That night, they hear Josh's agonized screams, but are unsure if it's truly Josh. The next day, Heather discovers a bundle of sticks tied with fabric from what appears to be Josh's shirt. She also finds blood-soaked scrap of his shirt, as well as teeth, hair, and a piece of what might be his tongue. Heather chooses not to tell Mike. That night, Heather records herself apologizing to her family and to Mike's and Josh's families as well. That night, they hear Josh's agonizing cries and follow them to an abandoned house containing dynamic symbols and children's bloody handprints on the walls. Trying to find Josh, they go upstairs and then back down to the basement. Something happens to Mike, causing him to drop his camera. Heather enters the basement screaming, and her camera captures what appears to be Mike standing in the corner. Something happens to Heather, causing her to stop screaming and drop her camera as well. Well, and roll to credits. Thank you for the real plot of the Blair Witch Project. I like my first plot better. I'm sure you do. We had mentioned it, the marketing of the movie. The budget, of course, well, the actual making of the movie was relatively small. But the marketing around this movie can only be described as brilliant. Like you had said, Eric, it was the beginning of the huge internet craze. And they put this out here as a true crime missing persons story. Yeah, they gave you everything you needed. I mean, they had newscasters doing news stories. They had fake locals. They had actors planted. They had documentary series. I mean, you didn't know whether it was a real movie that was being filmed or if it was real footage that was found. It was pretty cool at the time. 
Well, Sci-Fi Network produced a documentary called The Curse of the Blair Witch, and it came out exactly at the same time this movie came out. And the documentary is very good. It, yeah. Its style is one that you would normally see in a normal documentary. Yeah, I mean, you see, if you turn on the ID network or any of the networks that are true crime now, this is the same format as followed what they follow in the Curse of the Blair Witch documentary. And to put out to what Eric was saying about the internet being in its infancy a little bit, it had enough where people were hearing things from the internet, but it was still word of mouth of rumors. People weren't using the internet back then to fact check. Right. The internet was used back then to kind of promote rumors. And Mostly not- chat rooms was the big thing in the late 90s. Yeah, and yeah. news groups too. The directors here, when their movie debuted at Cannes, they went up and put missing posters all around Cannes. I mean, that's crazy. It's really interesting. They were so committed to this whole idea of this being a, a true story. And I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know about the two of you, but when I saw this movie, I saw it the weekend it came out because I was fully invested. I thought it was real. I was hook, line, and sinker. They got me. I mean, I loved the movie so much when I saw it the first time opening weekend. I actually saw this movie four times in the movie theater. I had to take all of my friends to see it. The only other movie that I've really done something like that with is when I saw The Hangover for the first time. I love and the then hangover. I took and then I took all my friends to see it because I wanted to see their reactions because this movie caught me. In the moment when this came out, I was hook line and sinker. It's funny you bring that up because I did not see this in the theater. I saw this on video and I can't even remember when I saw it on video. But there are some movies that you see in the theater and you're like, wow, that is the greatest or it's the scariest or it's the most suspenseful. And then you see it on video and you're kind of like, eh, I don't know what, what I was thinking. It's the ambiance of the theater. The one that comes to mind for me is The Ring. I saw The Ring in the theater when it opened. I was scared out of my mind, just jumping out of my yeah. seat. And then I saw it again on on video and I'm like this isn't scary this is what's going on here so a lot of it is the ambiance of being in the dark theater surrounded by people it's a scary movie I mean it is a really scary uh, movie that has so many twists and turns without being gory or violent or anything it keeps you on the edge of your seat yeah and you mentioned being in a crowded theater yeah and there were actually people that got sick oh in sure the, I, in the I, theater I read that. yeah because of the shakiness of the camera and like i said i was invested in the story i mean the directors took like we had mentioned about the internet being so young and not using it to fact check like we do today they put up a year before the movie released they created the missing persons website and it's ingenious And I don't generally go into a movie completely blind like that, or at least I didn't then, and I definitely haven't since. The directors here and the producers, they really did a job on that. What did you think, Ken? Well, I saw this movie when it came out in theaters. In fact, it's the first movie that we're reviewing that I actually saw in the theater. I took my girlfriend at the time, and is it wrong to hope that this was real? I mean, Did she throw up? No, she didn't throw up. Her head didn't spin around, PC didn't come out. But is it wrong to have wanted this to be real? Because there was part of me that wanted it to be real, but I knew going into it that it wasn't. How could it be? It was a packed house. As Ted stated earlier, when he went to see it, there wasn't an empty seat in the theater when we saw it. The intensity in the theater itself was something special. To be in that room watching this movie with a bunch of other people who thought that this could possibly be real was intense. I would give them that. I just wish the movie was as tense as the crowd was. 
It's funny that you bring up the intensity of the movie as well, because one of the only other movies that really captured that intensity was another horror movie for me, which was Paranormal Activity. And you had already mentioned Paranormal Activity before as one of the highest grossing compared to its budget. Yeah, it was shot on a $15,000 budget, and I don't know what the post-production was, but when you do the numbers, yeah, it's between these two movies that are technically the highest grossing movies of all time. And without The Blair Witch, there's no paranormal activity, to be perfectly honest. I don't know if we could do this again today as far as what The Blair Witch did. No. But they kind of did with Paranormal Activity. And it wasn't like we were decades removed from the Blair Witch Project when Paranormal Activity came out. And the internet had even advanced even further. And there was still, they were able to pull off, not to the degree the Blair Witch Project did, but they did catch uh, that lightning in a bottle again with Paranormal Activity. That's really because the Blair Witch Project couldn't be done today because everyone's got GPS on their phones and it's impossible to get lost in a forest even though they thought they couldn't get lost in the forest but they did paranormal activity is a great movie because that's kind of jumping on the people that have security cameras in their house Mm -hmm. you know baby cams nanny cams you know what got me with paranormal activity it's not what happens in the movie what they did was they took something so innocuous as that time stamp Mm mm-hmm And they actually made that timestamp the actual catalyst for the fear. Because you knew as it spun fast, nothing was going on. But the moment it slowed down, you knew something was going to happen. And then you got heightened waiting waiting for that to happen. And I saw that in the movie theater with a bunch of people too. And it scared me. It's so crazy. You wouldn't think something so small and insignificant as the seconds ticking by on that timestamp would create that sort of tension, but they did it. And we could bait all day whether or not they ruined the whole thing by continuing to make them. But that first one, seeing that in the movie theater, really caught a lot. And what they did too is they did a Blair Witch Project type marketing around it where they did put out a missing thing for the lady who ends up killing her husband. Spoiler alert in the paranormal activity. Darn it, I didn't that see she, it. What the that she that? was <laughs> that, that she was actually actually wanted and was missing. They kind of caught that again. I thought that that was pretty interesting. And I would like to say that I don't think that they could capture something like that again. But here again, we weren't that far removed from the Blair Witch Project when Paranormal Activity came out. So that's kind of interesting, in my opinion. I don't know. If you compare the two movies, there's there's one big difference, though, is that the intensity that Paranormal Activity creates there's a payoff. I don't feel like there's any payoff here in the Blair Witch Project. I'm waiting for this intensity to pay off, and it never does. You're kind of on your edge of your seat, but nothing happens. And that's the difference between these two movies. You know, one's marketed better, which I think the Blair Witch Project was marketed better because of the time frames. But Paranormal Activity is actually a much better movie because it builds up that tension and then it delivers. I think Paranormal Activity, I know we're not reviewing Paranormal Activity, but it feels that way, is more of a believable movie. If you're sitting there in a theater, you can relate to being in your house or being in your bedroom or being in your dining room, having a a haunted house. We're being in the forest, eh, it's a little less believable with a ghost and stuff. But Paranormal Activity, for me, I did see that one in the theater too, and it scared the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll be honest, that thing freaked me out and it freaked out 
everyone in the theater too. That movie, yeah. It made yeah. you want to film your what's going on in your house and see if the same things were happening. Yeah, it, it really did. I guess I'll pose this question because we've talked about these two movies and seeing them in a large theater with other people. Are horror movies better when you're with a group of people in a movie theater that you can have a group experience with? Or can you take that horror movie and get the same experience at home? I think it depends on the scenario at home. So if you're watching a horror movie, let's say late at night, you're by yourself, it's one o'clock in the morning, you're tired. I think horror movies can manipulate your surroundings and can make a horror movie just as good at home than it would be in the theater. But the intensity in the theater, because of the sounds that echo throughout the whole theater, when you go to a theater, it's just unique. Years before, surround sound was even a thing. When you hear like a scream or you hear like something crashing through, you're already jumping before you even see what's happening because of the sound of the movie. Right. Movies on the big screen are always going to be bigger, in my opinion. I mean, it's great to watch a movie at home, you know, on a 55 or 65 or 75 inch screen, which I think is now the new norm. I think, unfortunately, movie theaters are dying off, kind of like our friends, the mall are, are dying off. But there's nothing like watching a movie in a theater now, especially with the sound systems they have. And I'm not talking about the, the artsy fartsies where you're sitting around tables, having waitresses give you drinks and food, where you can't enjoy the movie. You're always being interrupted. And there's people watching walking in front of you. I'm talking like old school. You're sitting in the theater, the lights are down, and that thing is just running full tilt. It's the best way. What's your thoughts on it, Ted? You know, I agree with both of what you had to say. I think there's something about having that collective experience with a group of other people that makes some movies better in some ways. And I think that might be what we're looking at here with the Blair Witch Project, where everybody around you is experiencing the same thing. Horror seems to lend itself to that collective group experience better than some other movies. It's kind of why it makes me like horror movies so much better in the movie theater. And this kind of leads us into the next topic that I wanted to discuss, which horror is unique. In my opinion, it's like comedy. It's very subjective. What would scare me wouldn't necessarily scare you, Eric, or you, Ken, and likewise, around the group. Was there anything in this movie that legitimately scared you? The ending was the only part of this movie that freaked me out even remotely. I'll be honest with you. It's built up and built up and built up. And then when they, she goes down the stairs and he's facing the wall, it freaked me out. I was like, <gasps> and then the camera fell that I jumped that that was it. Exactly. Whereas that got you Ken didn't get the same release of uh, the tea kettle pressure that had built up for him throughout the movie with the ending. Cause I agree with you. I thought the, the ending was terrifying, not necessarily terrifying. Like I couldn't walk or anything. Suspenseful. It's, it's, it, it, it's, built it up. scared me. Yeah. And I thought it was a payoff. So Ken, was there anything in the movie that scared you and how come the ending didn't have that tea kettle release for you? Like it did for Eric and I. I think the cost of the movie scared me. Uh, the popcorn and the pop that came along with it, the prices, yeah, those things scared me. But this movie, nothing really scared me. I do relate with the fact that if you're lost in the woods, that could be a scary thing. But I thought throughout the movie, they teased you that they were going to show something scary and they just never did. I mean, you're, you're running through the woods and she's screaming, what the fuck is that? And I'm like, I don't see anything. 
there are times where they're like screaming and yelling and they're frightened. And I'm like, I don't know what you're screaming and yelling about because I don't see it. And so it's hard for me to relate. I mean, the children laughing is kind of creepy and I like it. But at the same time, there's nothing that I see that would freak me out. Those stick figures that are hanging from the trees, they're not freaking me out. Maybe because it's black and white. For me, I camp a lot. I used to camp a lot more. I don't camp as much as I used to. But we've camped camped tented and then we had a little camper. And, you know, when you're sleeping at night and you're surrounded by woods and you hear all those noises, it's a little daunting. It's a little creepy. And, you know, to wake up and have a pile of something that you know was not there when you went to sleep and you were in the middle of nowhere, that would freak you out. That would freak me out. I'd be like, we're done. We're out of here. I think it's intense. And it I, is think it builds, I think it builds up the intensity, but again, there's just nothing that really freaks me out. I mean, they're toying not, with them. They're toying with them the whole movie. Sure. And you can question on who's toying with them. I have my own suspicions on who's toying with them. And I actually enjoyed the documentary. The documentary actually scares me a little bit more because it felt more real to me. And maybe that's the difference is you've been in the woods, you've camped out. I mean, my idea of camping is going to a Super 8 motel. That's roughing um, it, right? Yeah, I'm roughing it. Yeah. I don't have the same eyes as you do to look at this film. Plus, I mean, my horror is things like Night of the Living Dead, The Exorcist. Those things scare me because there's something that actually comes out and wants to do something to you. But I'm not seeing anything. I'm hearing things. They're not really creepy s- sounds at first. They get creepy when the children, I think, come in. But when you hear in the crackling and stuff like that, I just, it could be anything. And maybe that is frightening to some people. But for me, unless I kind of know what it is, it isn't really freaking me out yet. I understand what you're saying, Ken. And, and in a way, I do agree that there are some movies that do benefit from having the thing that scares you on screen. And you mentioned two really good examples. But I also like the Hitchcock idea of what you don't see is maybe scarier than what you see. And then that leads me into what Eric was saying. I used to camp a lot, especially when I was in the Boy Scouts. And when you're in a tent and there was usually only one other person in the tent with you and you can't fall asleep and you're in your sleeping bag and you hear stuff out in the the forest, it's disconcerting to say the least. And of course, your mind starts to to run and you start to trying to rationalize what is it. And I'd be remiss in saying that there weren't times being in the forest where I was scared at night hearing things. But the other thing that got me is the paranoia of being lost in the woods. I was lost in the woods. Not you still are. Yeah, I probably am. <laughs> but I did get separated from other people in the woods once and had to find my way back to camp. That's terrifying. The movie ended up bringing that emotion back out to me. I brought that with me to the movie. And then on the top of that, having the belief these were missing people just added to that. It's the perfect storm for you. It's the right. perfect, everything came together to make that happen. Of course, certain things for me were the exact opposite. We talked about earlier about people getting sick. I didn't get sick. I was getting annoyed by the shakiness of the camera at times. What benefits this movie is also it's frustrating for me to deal with. And it's the fact that it possibly more real by filming it this way. However, when I go see a movie, I guess I'm more for professional camera work. And so it does take away from me based on what my perfect storm would probably need to be. 
This movie wouldn't be any good if it didn't have a shaky camera. It wouldn't be not even remotely believable. It wouldn't right. be authentic. Not at all. Based on what the marketing was for this film, it needed those things to happen. Like I said earlier, it's the perfect storm for, for Ted because he believed that this was real going into it, whereas I was like, there's no way this can be real. First of all, they're not going to show people actually being murdered on film. There's no way they can get that approved and use it for entertainment. So going into the film, I had a different approach, but the word of mouth was so great. You just had to go see it. That was the thought of that time. Everybody was wanting to see this film. And based on how much money it made, everybody did go see this film, except for Eric, who saw it later on video. So. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned, Ken, like Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist. The other part of horror movies that really intrigues me is horror movies and horror movie directors and writers, I think, pay more homage to the movies that came before them than some other genres of movie making. Did anybody else uh, have any examples that The Blair Witch Project paid homage to The closest thing I can come to is maybe Night of the Living Dead. It is kind of shot like a home video. So I could see a little bit of an homage to that movie. People later on homage this film, especially like within the next three or four years, parodies of this movie are all over the place. It actually gets kind of sickening after a while. I mean, you had the Blair Bitch Project too. I mean, it's just so much out there. That I Did that have was, Linda Blair in it? Linda Blair, yes. Blair, Blair. I think it did a great job of creating its own identity. But if I did choose one movie that it might be paying homage to, it's probably Night of the Living Dead. Well, you're right. The found footage phenomenon that has infested horror movies is now an old trope because of Paranormal Activity and The Blair Witch Project. But The Blair Witch Project wasn't the first movie to have this idea of found footage. There was a a little-known movie that was actually banned in a lot of countries, Italy being one of them, which was Cannibal Holocaust, which had the idea of found footage. So in a way, The Blair Witch Project is providing homage to that particular movie. And you're right, I did get a Night of the Living Dead vibe, especially when they're at the beginning of the movie and they're getting the first shots of the graveyard and it's in black and white and they got the close-ups of the headstones. I really got my Night of the Living Dead vibe from that. My favorite part is actually before they go into the woods, getting all these stories from the town folk and you have that little kid who's trying to shut her, his mom up because she's telling a, a story about it. And the, the funny thing about that was those were actually real townspeople that was making up stories. And yeah. this child was just actually scared to hear what his mom was saying on to, in this interview and tried to cover her mouth up. But I love that stuff because ghost stories are awesome. I love a great ghost story. And I just feel like there could have been more that needed to be done with those ghost stories. I mean, I got a little payoff on it later on, but I just didn't feel like there was enough payoff based on the ghost stories that were told earlier. Another major influence, I think, on the Blair Witch Project would be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the first movie that came out at the beginning of the movie and said, this is based on true events. There's something about that at the very beginning of the movie that immediately gets you, I don't know how to put it exactly, but it gives it street cred, basically. It It gives it some kind of credentials. Like The Exorcist, it's based on 
something that happened to a child earlier. So, you know, when you hear these stories, it kind of gives it street cred and it makes it a little bit more believable. Yeah, it takes you from an at-ease feeling and it makes you feel uneasy. And it really kind of sets that equilibrium off. I mean, now you know what you're getting into. This really happened, especially as interesting when you take a movie like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which that's a whole nother level of horror. But I can definitely see that. And your plot, you had mentioned that Heather comes out of the, the tent and finds the wrapped up sticks with parts of Josh in the sticks and the bloody, bloody, uh, tooth. The bloody yeah, the bloody tooth and the shirt, the bloody shirt wrappings. And this is interesting because there's a movie that's a silent movie from the 20s called Hoxon, which Hoxon is Dutch for witch. They actually took the name of their movie producing company is Hoxon Films. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, there is a part where a severed hand is wrapped up in a bunch of twigs and presented to one of the main characters. To me, I find that interesting. I was able to find some things that, that really connected it to the past in horror movies. And I just think that horror movies do that in a way that other genres of movies don't. You made some good points there that I didn't uh, ever think about. I'm assuming neither of you have seen Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> Never seen Cannibal Holocaust. Saw Cannibal the Musical. Yeah. Cannibal Run. <laughs> Cannibal Run, yeah. It's not for everybody. It's part of that genre of Italian horror that isn't talked about a lot. There are some directors from that Italian school of horror. Dario Argento is one. And then Fellucci's Zombie is another that's iconic as far as horror movies go. I mean, we had just discussed about how we saw the similarities between movies that it came before. And you had mentioned before we started, Eric, and I think we would be remiss in saying if we didn't at least touch on the fact that they really do encapsulate the era of the Salem witch trials into the whole mythology that they built around the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. Weren't you saying something that they had talked and they had mentioned a lot about the crucible? Yeah, they were initially when they came up with this idea in 1997, they were basing the Blair Witch on the Salem Witch Childs and the uh, Crucible kind of as, as a basis and then kind of went a little forward on that, making up the stories and the folklore. That was what they were basing it on originally. I thought they were basing it on Hocus Pocus with Bette Midler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, close. Yeah, no, you can really tell when they were creating the mythology of the Blair Witch. There is one other thing that I would like to mention, and I've not read that this was any sort of an inspiration, but there is an incident. It falls under the paranormal purview, which is the Dyatlov Pass incident, where six hikers in Russia had a not a similar situation happened to them like what happens in the Blair Witch, but they all died under extremely bizarre circumstances. And their tent was essentially just like what's in the Blair Witch. They don't know if it was attacked or what, but the tent was ripped apart and all of the hikers, and these were ex highly experienced uh, hikers, they all died. It's one of those things that does fall under the paranormal that really hasn't been explained. But there is a sim similarity there where you're out in nature and something like this could happen. Yeah, no, definitely. So 
the movie presents us with three characters, essentially, that are our main characters, Heather, Mike, and Josh. Is there any part of these characters that you identify with or that you have an experience that's like them or know somebody like them? If you don't identify with them, then it would be interesting to know why, because I do have a connection with Josh. I really feel his trajectory of how he's on board, but then when things start to deteriorate, he tries to keep it together until his stuff is the one that's attacked and has the jelly substance on it, and then he feels that he's the target. And I identify with that a lot. I feel that I would react in a very similar way to Josh. I think I can relate a little bit to Heather in the fact that she was trying to keep everything together, uh, no matter what happened, any situation from the initial part where they're all great spirits, looking forward to it, and everything's cool, and she's kind of taking the lead a little bit. And then once things start to deteriorate a little bit after the map gets lost, and she's trying just to keep everything together, and then just loses it. She's done she's out. I can relate to that a little bit. That's pretty much all I can relate to. The other characters, I'll be honest, I can't relate to them at all. And even with Heather, it's probably not a really big relation, which is going to be my uh, issue with the movie down the road is my uh, not being able to relate to the characters. Therefore, I'm really not too crazy about the characters. That's my issue. You don't get vested into them? I'm not. Honestly, I'm not vested in these characters. I mean, the ending I like just because I like the folklore. I like how they built this up. I like how this all came together. You know, the townspeople, as I was reading about this, or maybe it was in the documentary or the director commentary, they had a mixture of planted actors and just random town people. And they didn't know who they were going to when they filmed this. And some of these townspeople, they just said stuff off the top of their head. And the one thing that no one said is the actors or the townspeople, they always said, it's kind of stories that were passed down, or I heard this, or, you know, it's from my neighbor. Nothing was hardcore fact. This happened. Everything was folklore. And doesn't that really happen in a small yeah, town? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's totally. a total small, small town thing. I, total small, yes, especially one that goes back several hundreds of years. Right. Yeah. Ken? I'm kind of similar to what Eric was saying about Heather, except it's a little different connection with Heather. I'm kind of someone who's a little bit, I'm not saying she's a perfectionist, but she's someone who wants everything to go perfectly. She is somebody that is passionate about trying to get something off the ground and is trying to do everything she can to keep it going. Um, sounds familiar. Sounds familiar, um, <laughs> as this podcast goes. But she's a little too over the top with it. I'm having a hard time buying this as a real documentary or that this is really happening to them when they're taking their cameras into the house. These cameras should have been dished a long time ago. You're lost. It's a scary situation. Maybe you can come back and find the cameras later with a bigger amount of people. But that's where I draw the line is it's just too much. Heather needs to record even when it's her friends like Josh is like having a mental breakdown and she wants to film it. That's just a little overboard. And the characters themselves are all kind of little whiny bitches. They're very whiny. That's my issue with them too. They're extremely whiny. That's typical, let's be honest, typical teenagers. 
Well, these are not teenagers. You got to figure out that these people are probably in their maybe early 20s. They're probably not. Yeah, they're college kids. students. They're early 20s. Yeah. Okay, yeah, typical 20-somethings. Okay. The issue here is we don't have enough of backstory on them. I think when you watch like The Curse of the Blair Witch, you get more of a backstory so you can be a little bit more invested. That's why I like the documentary. I'm more invested in them because I get to hear more about who they are. These are three people who are whiny and I only see one side of them and it's not a side I particularly care for if I'm just watching the movie in itself. So I'm not invested in these characters on the movie alone. You throw in this documentary, I mean the the fake documentary, the the curse of the Blair Witch and you would have mixed it with the Blair Witch project. I think you would have a really good movie here because then you're able to like be invested with the characters and you're kind of rooting for them. Right now, all I'm saying is you get what you paid for. You guys got into this, deserved it, because basically you didn't really take the precautions. You got yourself a map that really didn't seem to work anyway. You had a book about how to survive in the woods, and <laughs> look what that did for you. So it just didn't seem like they did enough here to make you want them to survive this. Do you think the documentary should have been part of the movie? Because the movie was under an hour and a half. Well, I think there's some things you can cut in this movie to make it even smaller. You could have put like a, a postscript after she died at the end or whatever happened to her at the end. You could have rolled into like a year later. Footage was found. Yes, I know it's a sequel now, but a year later, the footage is found and have the documentary made and kind of roll that in for an extra half hour. Well, The Curse of the Blair Witch actually shows actual footage of the movie and incorporates yeah. it here and there throughout the film. It broadened it out more, but it does take away then what Ted likes about the movie. When he comes in, that it's a real thing. When you do it the way that I'm suggesting it, it's actually a movie. It's not raw. You don't think it's raw footage. It's like a, an actual movie. So it does take that away if you like that. But for me, I think the combination of a story and being invested with characters and then hoping that they survive, I think for me would have worked out a little bit better. Well, supposedly there is a version of the movie that the directors did make that is more in lines with what you're talking about, Ken. And I guess they made the executive or directorial decision to cut that out of the movie. As far as I know, that version of the movie doesn't exist anywhere, but I did hear in listening to their commentary on the Blu-ray that they did think of doing that what you were talking about I, I don't think the movie would have done as well as how i want it to be done but at the same time you're asking what i like in a movie that's what i would like in the movie and then right and then the other two characters yeah it just seemed like they're a little bit of i don't want to say stupid but like for instance the cameraman doesn't really know the camera that he's working with. He's only used it one other time. I mean, it's just, and you're making this documentary, I would think you would bring people in that had more experience with the stuff that you want to do. It is a student film. And so I'll give them a little bit of leeway there. And what I will say is I will defend them a little bit as far as being whiny. If you go with the story of the movie, you're catching these people at the worst moments of their life, especially when it comes towards the end. I think there's a point where Mike and Heather, when they're alone after Josh disappears, they are resigned to their fate. Even though they don't ever come out and say it directly and they talk about what they're going to eat or do when they get 
out, you don't really believe that they believe they're going to get out of this alive. I'll give them a little bit of a pass with that because we are catching them, like I said, at the worst moment of their life. And it's funny because you had mentioned Heather, you both had mentioned Heather, and I mentioned Mm -hmm. Josh. I have mixed feelings about Mike. Mike betrays them. If this was reality and he would have done something as egregious as kicking the map away, I can't even fathom what somebody would do to a person that did something like that. His character is the most up and down character and inconsistent character in the movie, in my opinion. He's not even apologetic for kicking the map. He's kind of just, and he's laughing about it. He's like, this is totally fucked up, but (laughs) I kicked that map into, you know, it's like, wait a second, how the heck do you kick a map, first of all? He starts breaking down a lot faster than than the other two. The first day. The first day, he's already upset at how long it's taking them to get to this graveyard. She told him that it should be a couple of hours or a couple of miles or something like that. And he's frustrated right off the bat that it's taking as long as it is to get to where they need to be. She's frustrating in a way, though, too, because I don't think she did her homework to go into the woods, what they're attempting to do there. No, that's she, just my personal opinion. She didn't. There's no way. First of all, she would have gone out there by herself. I don't think she's that kind of person that would do that, to be honest with you. She relied on the map. She relied on the local townies. And I think that's the extent of her research. And she, she mapped it all on the map, but she didn't actually go out there and do any actual physical research. Now, Eric, you had brought up the townspeople. Yes. The townspeople, I think, are fascinating. They are I, very fascinating. I, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie, actually, is, is all the different townspeople. Do each of you have a favorite townsperson? I think the, the creepiest one is, um, I'm, I'm forgetting her name, the one that lives, the last one, the one that lives in the mobile home. Mary Brown. Mary, Mary Brown. Brown. Yeah. I think she, she looks like a witch. Really creepy looking. I just want to know how they got Margaret Kidder. Margot Kidder. It does yeah. look like Margot Kidder, yeah. <laughs> she does a little bit, yeah. That's yeah. pretty funny. I guess they had room in the budget for her. Uh, at that time, she probably would take like a ham sandwich. The lady actually was one of the only people that answered a call yeah. at the local community college. She's for... like the oldest person. She's the only one who answered the call. And, and she... they're like, yeah. And when they met her, she was so bizarre. And so they just played up her bizarreness. But she was kind of quirky, just like the character that she plays. I thought that was interesting. She's one of my favorite, but she's not my favorite. Do you have a favorite, Ken? I probably would lean on Mary Brown. I mean, she's a ballerina. She's writing a book on American history. She's um, a witch. I do- Yeah, I do like the two fishermen a little bit. I mean, especially the one that they asked permission from. Those were real actors, by the way. They uh, are. They were, They were. Um, I, I think, father and father-in-law or something. Or, they're uh, they're supposed to be, yeah. They're supposed to yeah. be father and, uh, father and, yeah, father-in-law and son-in-law. Yeah. But the best character of them all is that little kid shutting up his mom. That's the best character of them all. <laughs> the kid's cute. She really and they is. couldn't find her after the filming. Blair Witch. 
Yeah, Blair Witch. Yeah, she's the, actually the Blair Witch. She's the Blair Witch. It's the whole thing. Yeah, because they're like, I know they said they got her permission when they originally filmed it, but they wanted to reach out to her after, and they couldn't find her, and they couldn't find another guy too, because the Blair Witch got him. So. Yep, exactly. But Ken, you had mentioned my favorite townsperson, and that's the kid. The two, the, it's the two fishermen. They add so much in their little bitty time on screen. They add so much color to the whole idea, even to the point where the old guy says, these darn kids won't ever learn, will they? Which makes you wonder, was there anybody else that went out there and disappeared? Oh, that's, yeah. And now that leads to the question, what happened at the end? All right, Ken, go for it. Major spoilers coming ahead. Just FYI for anybody who's not seen The Blair Witch Project. My theory on what happened here at the end. So if you watch also The Curse of the Blair Witch, you know that Josh and Heather have a relationship. Uh, at least they've been working together. It's also kind of indicated that they might have had more of a friendship. Who knows? Maybe they were boyfriend and girlfriend, maybe. And Mike, oh, Mike, they're just meeting Mike for the first time. He must have answered an ad or something because Heather introduces herself as nice to meet you, Mike. So it sounds like that at least she doesn't know him. Could be Mike and Josh trying to kill Heather because of maybe something that was going on between Josh and Heather. Maybe they broke up and he's getting revenge. There are just certain things that he says and does throughout the movie that makes it indicate that he takes a lot out of her. They seem like a married couple that's like bickering and fighting throughout the whole process. We see that camera go down at the end of the film, Mike's camera go down, but we see what looks like to be Mike standing up and it's right away. It's very quickly. So either Mike got hit over the head and somehow got him to stand up right away and gave him instructions right away, or Mike dropped the camera, got into the corner. So when Heather got downstairs and saw Mike, she's distracted because Josh is right behind her and, and kills her. My theory is the boys killed her. This is why I love discussing movies that have an ambiguous ending. All of the years that I've seen this movie, that never crossed my mind. That is super interesting. The only thing that would that I would have a problem with is with the children laughing, but they are film students. They have access to audio. They could easily play these sounds because if you think about it, Josh earlier said, did you hear those sounds the first night? They didn't hear those sounds. Only Josh heard the sounds. So, and it could easily be that one of them would sneak out and put the rocks out. And then, of course, Josh leaves. And Josh he's the just, one that disappears. He's the one that sure. disappears, but you hear his voice, it sounds like. It sounds like Josh, and he's screaming in pain. And, and then later on, he's screaming in, in this house. It seemed like it could easily be staged. The shaking of the thing, all you had to do was probably sit back and ruffle the, the tent a little bit to get that shaking factor. And then you all just run out. And then it's Josh's stuff that's got slime over it. It's, it's just certain things that just seem like it was staged in order to just kill her. And they, and they basically wanted to fuck with her mind throughout the whole time frame. They're just they messing did. with her mind. Yeah. And I think they even said something like to that effect. And like he's videotaping her and he's making her feel bad. This is kind of a revenge type of filming her. He's mad at her and it might be more than just getting them lost. He might be upset with her from prior relationship. That's wild. I've never looked at it that way. And I don't know if I go back and watch the movie again, I might take that particular 
look at it, we have a different movie. That's super interesting. I can't believe that my true crime addled mind wouldn't have come up with that particular scenario. Look at the map. He kicked the map. Right. He got rid of the map. How right. convenient it was it for them to get rid of the map? And they could easily just lead her in the wrong direction and mess with her. She might think she knows where she's going. And they're like, yeah, she doesn't know where she's going. Let's just work with this. I mean, it just seemed like there were so many factors that were playing into this. And they and and they're the ones that lead, and they end up going in a circle. She's the last person in line, so she's following them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This could t- totally be a, th- a total thing. That's something. I can't. It's a game changer, isn't it? It really is. I, w- <laughs> I secretly wish I would have come up with that particular idea. My my idea now seems kind of Scooby Dooish compared you blew to his mind. Uh, com- Kent. To, wow. compared to yours, that Scooby Dooish. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> that might that actually might <laughs> Those be meddling a- kids. <laughs> that might actually be a better movie now uh, if I look at it like that that's completely crazy <laughs> i'm yeah i'm speechless really so eric what do you think happened at the end hopefully it's as interesting as what ken said i i wish i could compete with that because i'll be honest ken told me that one a little bit earlier today and it kind of blew my mind too i was like whoa that's i never thought of it that way to be honest with you i i don't know man i was playing into it like there was some type of a possession or something when that when he was down in the basement there looking at the wall playing into the folklore but you're right it would be a great uh, attraction for you walk in there you play it and you bop her on the head and it's it's done well, look how the two guys flip-flop their um, yeah. insanity. One yeah. plays the insane person. The other one right. is kind of like telling Heather, just give him some space. And then it flips. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah, kind you're of absolutely like, right. Yeah. They both don't flip out at the same time. Only one flip flips out and the other right. one is right. there to kind of like. They do. Yeah. So I think they're playing off of each other to mess with her. That's wild. My theory is not nearly as interesting as that. Well, I have to. It's, I don't have a theory, so yours has got to be better than mine. I'm I mean, curious. I bought in like you, Eric. I bought into the paranormal aspect yeah. of the end of the movie, where we know that Rustin Parr put the kids up in the wall against the corner of the wall, facing into the wall because he didn't want the eyes to look at him. And I just figured that something got them that was possibly paranormal in nature or somebody was like, and this is where I guess the Scooby-Doo aspect would come. Somebody was messing with them and there was a killer that was in the woods and was trying to recreate copycat style what Rustin Parr had done, which kind of leads me to think like the guy says at the creek, the fisherman, these kids will never learn. So it makes me wonder, like I said, if this had happened before where people maybe locally had went in looking for this stuff and never came out. The other thing that, that comes to mind, too, is when you're watching the documentary, the time frame for the Blair Witch to appear, to do anything, was right anywhere between like 50 and 60 years, give or take. Mm-hmm. The last time was in the 1940s. So this right. incident occurring in what, mid-90s, whatever it was, is right along the terms of the next Blair Witch incidents, which right. kind of led me into saying, okay, we're, we're 50 years, they've woken Did the Blair she, right. Witch. 
way. Did she come back and inhabit somebody else like she sure. did Rustin Parr at that time? That's exactly where I went with it. And I have to say now that's not nearly as interesting as it's Ken's idea. Look at Heather finds the shirt with the, the blood. Not Mike. Mike doesn't find these things. Heather finds all these crazy little things that are going on. I think they're set up for her to see this. I think Mike and Josh know where they've been going this whole time. They might be messing with her that she doesn't know where she's going because they know where they're going. They've known all along. They know that they can mess with her because she doesn't know. That she didn't do her homework, but they did. And so now they can take advantage of it. If you look at it, Josh and Mike don't really go after each other per se. They always are attacking Heather and messing with her mind with getting them lost, not doing the, the homework that she needed to do, and that she keeps on filming and that they really give her a hard time about that. The only time that Josh gets mad at Mike is for losing the map. And that's just an act, in my opinion. Who kicks a map? Would that just like stick to your foot? <laughs> Kick it into the water. I know. That didn't make any sense to me when they said, I kicked that mat. You've brought a different take to the movie. Now, if you're going to watch it again, you're going to watch yeah. it for those two characters alone. Right. Just to kind of feed off each other. So to take this the next step, Ken, what did Mike and Josh do after they got out of this? Did they move away then? I mean, because there had to be an end game for them somewhere, right? Maybe not, though. I mean, these are film students. These are young guys who are probably just... When you're young, you think you're invincible and you think you probably can get away with murder. No pun intended. Talking about Hitchcock earlier in the movie Rope is comes to mind where two guys kill a fellow student and see if they can get away with it. So it's not like this isn't something that we've not seen before. In this particular case, maybe they think they can reappear. I mean, how many times have we seen movies where they take on a different identity down the road? We don't know enough background of them to actually know what they can do to get away with this. I think I believe in that more than I would believe in it being supernatural. Well, you've just blown my mind, and I'm in shock over that. He's um, speechless. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. I don't know if I'm more worried about being speechless or, or what. But coming back to reality from out of the movie, they did shoot four different endings for the movie. There's the one that's in the movie where Mike is standing facing into the corner of the room. The next one is... Mike facing out from the corner of the room. So he's forward facing. Mm -hmm. The third ending that they filmed is Mike hanging from a noose. Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me because when they enter the house immediately, it seems like I catch a glimpse of a noose hanging around somewhere around in there in the left-hand side of the, the screen. I find that interesting as well. And that would really play into when we talk about the whole Salem witch trial and the crucible and all of that information, that kind of ties into that whole mythology as well. Well, what's his name? They, the, did, they did hang a lot of them. The killer. What's Rustin? What's his Rustin name? Rustin Parr. Yeah. They hung him. Correct. They, he was hung. And then the last ending where he's floating amongst, but, but if he's floating, but it has the whole screen is also covered with the stick figures. Now you said that that was cheesy. I thought that is kind of interesting because wouldn't that play into the whole ghost story, supernatural ending? It's kind of interesting though, in my opinion. I think they picked the right ending. I think they did as well. Do you think they picked the right ending, Ken? 
I think it's good to leave it up into interpretation of what you thought happened at the end. But like I said, there's certain things at the beginning of the movie that don't pay off. This kind of pays off the mention of the mass murderer of who killed the children and had one child stand in the corner. And the only problem I have with that story, by the way, is seven kids. Don't you need to have two kids at a time? So shouldn't it be an even number? One of them got away. One of them got away. Right. One of them got away. Because if memory serves me correctly, the killer actually went into town and said that it was done, that he had completed everything that he needed to do. And that's when they went out to his location and found these dead bodies. I think I like an open interpretation. Sometimes it can get frustrating, but I think in this case, based on what they've done up to this point, I think it's good for open interpretation. It allowed me to blow Ted's mind. So Mm -hmm. there you go. Well, you sure did that. I might have to watch the movie again to uh, watch it with a different set of eyes now. Finally, before we give our final grades, I want to talk about scenes because there's two scenes for me that really make this movie exceptional. I thought that they were well shot and the actors did very good for not having very little experience. And I thought that they exposed the desperation in some cases and real life emotion of the situation. The first scene I'd, I would personally want to talk about is the scene where all of a sudden Josh has Heather's camera and he comes to the realization that the reason she's continuing to film is that there's a separation from reality. And when he does that, he gets mean downright extremely mean in some cases to Heather and really starts to break her down as far as what's your motivation. I thought that that was extremely emotional and I thought that they really captured true real life emotion, particular scene. Yeah, that was probably one of the the best scenes. It's intense. Yeah, because you can actually understand why, to a certain extent, that he's going after her because she kept on filming over and over and over again. And they asked her to stop on multiple occasions, and it just sent them over the edge. And he's like, oh, I see why you like to do this. It distorts your reality, makes you not deal with reality. And that goes back again to why I'm thinking that they had a relationship beforehand, because I think there's something there that didn't work out. And now he's blaming the way she is on why it didn't work out for them. And he's attacking her. And she looks at him like somebody who had a relationship with him. She's, she tells him to F off. And she's got that look on her face like, I can't believe you're doing this to me. She does. She gives that look like, I can't believe you're turning on me. Mm-hmm. And you feel her hopelessness. And you feel like she feels that she's all alone, even though that there's other people with her. It felt real. It felt raw. I thought it really captured human emotion really well. The other scene that I would particularly like to bring up would be the apology scene, where it's just her and the extreme close-up of the camera. And you can really see that she's crying. There's nothing fake about her crying in that particular scene. It's real because it's so raw and it's so intense that you feel her pain. You feel the desperation. You feel like she really brings you into her mind that this is the end. There's no getting out of this. And she's making one last hearted a plea to apologize to the families. It's in a way it's heartbreaking. You're seeing what could possibly be this person's last moments. And I don't think a lot of movies try to get that authenticity and they fail. And I think that they really captured an authentic 
human moment. I think that it's just very unique. I'm going to disagree with you on this only because I think if this was shot at a different angle, not so close up that I can agree with that. But I think I'm too focused on the fact that you see nose hairs and snot and all this stuff and you're concentrating more on what's going on with her nose than what she's saying. And it kind of takes that away from me. I think what she's doing and her acting, I think she's spot on. But I think the way that this is being presented, this close up, I mean, it's been mocked for so many years. I feel like if they would have done a better job of back a little bit, and I think she does a great job of showing real emotion. And it's, a, it's almost, to me, a travesty that they filmed it this close up. But here's the thing with that, Ken. She actually filmed it that way. That was the take. That's how it was done. And it was filmed that way, and they didn't have her redo it. She really thought she was dead center on the camera, and right. she wasn't. Ted's right. It's raw emotion. It's pretty much you've given up. You're telling the world, I'm sorry, and I could possibly die. I don't know what's going to go on. I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm sorry for everything that I've caused. I'm taking responsibility for all this, and just hopefully someone will get this tape and know what happened to us, which leads into the folklore as well, too. Yeah, I mean, they could have backed it out. They could have redone a lot of those takes to make them better. When you watch the director's cut, they're talking about all the stuff that they did on it, which I thought was kind of funny and kind of odd. They could have done a lot of retakes on it, and a lot more post-production. But they're like, you know what? We made it work. It turned out it was raw. It was emotional. It was real. It was realistic. It really gave more credence to make this more of a real documentary style film than something that's polished. Well, let's give these three actors the benefit of actually being the directors and the writers of this film. They're given a loose script. I think the script was 35 pages long. Mm-hmm. and they read through it. But all this is basically dumb inventing lines on their own. They're ad-libbing a lot of this stuff. Like you said just now about she thought she centered the camera and she got a different, but that's not how it turned out. They were the ones that were directing this film. They were the ones that there were the cameramen. They were the writers. You got to give these three actors a lot of credit for this movie because really they made it their own. I don't know if I can give as much credit to the writers and directors because I don't know what they really contributed outside of shaking the tent because I heard that they came and shook the tent when they were in there and they did freak out a little bit because they didn't know that they were going to do that. But outside of that, they were left alone. Yeah, I agree that these three actors don't get nearly enough credit because what they essentially signed up for was to be tortured. Pretty much three days. Yeah, for nine nine days. Just like the people who are listening to this podcast, they signed up to be tortured. Right. Because they did. They started cutting their rations of food. And I hate to do this, especially for horror movies, because I like to live in the movie, especially with horror movies. And I'm not real big on how the secrets behind a horror movie. But in this case, we'll bring it up because I think it's interesting. The director and the writer, they had a group of people that were with them, the production crew, essentially follow the three actors. And you're right, Ken, they did ad-lib. A lot of the dialogue is genuinely authentic banter between the three characters. They were given bullet points that they needed to hit as far as what's supposed to happen that day. But everything else is them. And I think that's pretty ingenious because it comes forward as authentic. And I think that's a big part of the movie that it feels authentic. Like when they come across all of the stick figures, 
they didn't know they were walking into that, but they were being led by the directors and the production crew down into that area. And so their reactions are pretty real. And of course, yeah, with the the shaking of the tent, those reactions are real too, because they didn't know that that was going to happen. But then they did. They started cutting their food rations. And by the time Josh disappears, essentially they're starving Mike and Heather. And you got the rain, you got the cold weather. Exactly. And when you see him, elements, yeah. I mean, you see him take a bite out of the leaf. leaf. (laughs) He was really hungry. These people signed up to be tortured in the woods for, for the length of the production. And to the point where Heather asked the director before they started shooting, are we making a snuff film? (laughs) because she was legitimately worried about what they were getting into i thought they really captured raw emotion and i think that's what comes out i think that that's still what makes it scary for me when i watch it well i can't argue with you there i mean it's clearly it's raw it's it's unproduced it's realistic it really is if you showed this to someone who had no access to the internet there's a really good chance they're gonna believe it I agree. It's very rare, and you don't see it in a lot of movies, especially nowadays with horror movies. You don't find authenticity like that very often. Nowadays, horror movies are, there is some sort of anthology outside of The Conjuring, which is probably my favorite of the most modern horror movie entries. We've kind of discussed a lot of things here, and we touched on a lot of things that I wanted to touch on. Were there any scenes that you guys wanted to mention that you thought really hit that emotional feeling that we didn't talk about? I thought the emotional part of it was, for me, was the beginning of the movie when they were conducting the interviews and they were filming the uh, the gravestones. The initial where they're all happy and they're meeting and they're driving around, they're buying the food in the store. It almost reminds me of Poltergeist, where obviously the plot of Poltergeist is they buy the house and it's built on an Indian burial ground. Spoiler alert. You know, they're a young couple. They buy the house. Everyone's so happy. And then it just goes downhill from there. They're stressed out amongst each other. And and this movie plays the same way, in my opinion. You know, you're happy-go-lucky. Things are going bad. You're turning on each other. And now you think, we're all going to die. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. Yeah. But I I like the beginning of it. I like the build-up. I like learning the back history of everything. The back history of the Blair Witch and the town of Burkittsville and the folklore of the community and kind of how it played in to the movie. You know, I, I liked when they found the house. I'm like, uh-oh, a house in the middle of nowhere. That's not going to be good. Exactly. It does lend that crowd credibility. And like you said at the beginning where they're having fun and everything is kind of light, it continues to suck me in every time. You feel like you're actually with these people. I don't yeah. know. You're going yeah. from great first day to we're all going <laughs> to die. We're all going to die. Right. right. So was there a scene, Ken, that you thought really captured emotion? That... Not that we haven't uh, talked about. already talked about. I think the, the scene when Josh is filming Heather, I think that's the maybe the best scene in the whole movie for me. But I agree with Eric. I love the town. I want to see a little bit more of it. I wanted to see maybe a little bit more of the pre-production of getting ready to go out into the woods. And maybe that would have helped me and be right. more invested with the characters. I completely understand where you're coming from. I kind of did wish that there was some more of the the townspeople. You know what I wish that there was a little bit more of? Was an explanation of 
Coffin Rock and that whole story. I thought there could be actually a movie about that particular whole scenario. The way they um, touched on it seemed that it, it was out of place. Yeah, it was a little too brief for my taste. Because it seems like you're having too many stories going on here. You have the psycho that kills the children. You have the guys that were killed and their bodies were disappeared later. You have the Blair Witch. You have all these stories. And I don't think you focused on one or the other. It seems like they were just bouncing all over. And at the end, you're using more of the guy who killed the seven children at the end there. If you're going to bring some other stuff in, then I need more of a payoff for whatever you're bringing into the picture. Is this the ultimate ruse, though, that it is a student film? It's not perfect. Maybe that's the ultimate gotcha in the whole movie, that it is student, it's not perfect, and they're still learning, and they died while they were learning. So as we come to the end, I'm going to shoot it over to Eric. What is your grade, and what is your final opinion of the movie? I think the movie is very revolutionary for its time. I think it did set off uh, similar movies, Paranormal Activity and so forth, for future movies. It's definitely ahead of its time there. I like the realism of the movie. I like the fact that it was made out to be a movie made by college kids, amateurs, on on a folklore of the Blair Witch, trying to figure it out. I really like that. What I didn't like about this movie was I could not relate to these characters. And for whatever reason, even with uh, Ken's little theory about them killing each other, which does help, actually, now that I, uh, I think about it and I want to watch it again and go into a little bit more depth about that. The characters for me, I don't know. They were just too whiny. I could not relate to them. I really could care less whether they lived or died. I just didn't care. And even by the end, I didn't care. I was more infatuated by the Blair Witch and by the folklore coming out in the house. It all kind of tied up and wrapped up in a nice pretty bow at that point, even though it was still open and he didn't know what happened to him. So I've been going back and forth on this one. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I like the marketing ploy of it. I wish I would have seen it in the theater. I'll be honest. I wish I would have seen this thing in the theater. I'm going to give this, for me, it's a C plus, B minus, probably more C plus. I can totally understand where you're coming from, Eric. So, Ken, what is your grade and final opinion of the movie? So this is a difficult one for me, as similar as when we reviewed Clerk. There's something about the fact that you went out and you did this and you accomplished something that was unique. They went out and they made it. It looks like a student film. I'm very impressed with these three actors. They're not the best actors in the world, and they're not the best directors in the world, and they're not the best with the dialogue, but they're doing it all. And I appreciate that. I really, really like their effort. But I agree with Eric. I'm not invested in any of these three characters. I don't like any of these three characters. I'm hoping to see something brutally happen to them at the end. I want some type of payoff. I want to see maybe Josh get stabbed or Heather get stabbed or anything like that. I know it's kind of crazy, but there's nothing in there that makes me want them to conquer, to get out of that situation. You want to see them disemboweled on Coffin Rock? It's hard for me to say that, but at the same time, I'm in there to see something gruesome happen because it's marketed as something really bad happened to these three kids. No, actually, I I don't think it was marketed that way. I think it was marketed as, as you said simply, three kids went into the forest and they never returned here's the footage of what happened. what might have happened right right 
And so it makes me think that I might see something really scary. And I never see anything really scary here. It's intense in that theater. The problem with seeing this in the theater for me was the camera. It was all over the place. It made me feel a little uneasy, not in a way where I was like uncomfortable because I'm scared of what's going to happen next. It's because I'm just tired of a shaky camera. And there were other people that were there with me that agreed with me. You know, people walked out and were frustrated that you could hear them on the way out. Some people were just disappointed because they thought it was going to be something different than what they got. And I was kind of one of those people. And I feel bad because I think these three actors went out and did the best job they possibly could do. I just think that with the intensity that they built up with the, the marketing and at the beginning of the movie, I just felt, like we said, no character development and nothing really that shocked me. At the end, all you're doing is running up and down a staircase. Then you see one of the characters in the corner and what's happening and then it, it, it ends. What happened? I guess I was left wanting more and I didn't get more. So on that note, I'm going to give it a C minus. It's got some great parts that I really like a lot, but in general, I was disappointed with the movie. Well, I can definitely respect what you have to say, Ken. I don't necessarily disagree with anything that you had to say. So that's going to lead into my final opinion and my final grade of the movie. The Blair Witch Project for me is a unique experience because I did have the experience of seeing it in the movie theater. I did have the experience of going into the movie thinking that it was possibly real. I also take that into how much I enjoyed that experience. I take that into when I view it at home and when I still watch it. Does it hold up the way it did those nights that I saw it in the movie theater? Unfortunately, no. Do I get as scared as I was when I first saw the movie? No, probably not. There are other movies that do scare me more than that. But it doesn't take away my enjoyment of the movie. I enjoy turning the lights off and watching the movie in the dark and being able to lose myself into the story. And I've said this about a couple of the other movies that we've reviewed, and that's ultimately how I really view a movie. Can I sit and watch a movie and, and enjoy the movie and just let reality go away? And I can do that with this movie. And I do get a little bit invested with the characters. They're not the best, most well-hashed out characters, especially for even horror movies that we're going to review in the future. They don't have as much meat on their bones as other horror movie characters. But for what it is, I still enjoy it. Ultimately, my final grade is going to be a B-. Because I don't feel the same way now that I did then, it doesn't scare me as much. By being a B minus, it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy the movie. To me, it's still thoroughly watchable. I usually watch it every October. I'll pull it out and I'll pop it in a Blu-ray player and watch it. Because ultimately, too, I like horror movies. And to wrap up everything, we encapsulated what one of my first premises in starting the podcast was. Horror is subjective. And I think we each brought a real unique point of view. Whereas all of the different opinions, we don't necessarily have those about a regular, a comedy or a drama. And that's one of the reasons that I love horror movies. And on that note, I'm going to say, I'm going to bid you adieu. I'll see you at the movies. Take care, everybody. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. We'll see you next review. Mm -hmm.